our responses to COVID around the world have been almost entirely determined by people my age, right? I mean, men around 50-ish, a bit, you know, plus or minus a few years. Most of the advisors and the policymakers come from a very narrow age range. And that might potentially have had a significant effect. I think it probably has had quite a significant effect on how we viewed and responded to COVID. Um, and it does remind us that when we're talking about diversity of perspective in decision making, we want diversity across a whole range of characteristics and opinions and beliefs and thoughts and age. This week's guest is Professor Paul Dolan from the London School of Economics. He's written two best-selling books on the topic of happiness and has spent many years in the data, in the research, trying to understand the social behaviour of what makes us happy. And I guess happiness is that elusive thing that, you know, we all ultimately want to feel good. And we're looking for practical tips of how we can feel a little bit better. And it was a very interesting conversation about the little daily things that we can do could ultimately lead to better well-being. Because so many of us can think that it's the big, massive nuggets in our life. I got loads of takeaways in this. Yeah, He's and I think that this, like, it, he, he does give five wonderful practical tips that are so easy and so simple. And they might sound so basic, but I think that one of the main things which you'll get from this conversation is the important, it's happiness isn't the big thing. It's the little things done consistently and done well. Yeah, and actually design them and baking them into your life. Really good conversation. He's good fun. And as we say in Ireland, he's good crack. We enjoyed this and really hope you do. So I, I loved his analogy of money being like a ref, ref, referee in a football match. Stay tuned. Listen, this is great. Paul Dolan, you're wonderful. Let's get this party started. Paul Dolan, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Okay, first question. If you describe yourself as a fruit or vegetable, what would it be and why? We're going deep and meaningful here. Mate, honestly, that's a start, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You said we could go anywhere. You've, so got, like, to let's just go you've, got, you've got to say banana, haven't you? Why is that? <laughs> you were serious about taking it dirty, weren't you? Um, <laughs> it was the first fruit that came into my mind. <laughs> okay, very yeah, nice. You're sweet. You're yeah. lovely and yellow, and you're loved by all, Paul Dolan. Uh, okay, no, I, 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 okay, I got a genuine question. So we've been fascinated with the blue zones. Do you know about the blue zones? I don't fi- know. They're, they're the five places in the world where there's the most amount of centenarians. So they're like, this National Geographic did a study and it was looking okay. for the longest living, healthiest, happiest people. And it yeah. was really interesting. Like we've read loads on it and watched loads on it or whatever. And I remember the guy who kind of fronted up, Dan Butner, really interesting guy. I remember someone asked him, what's a recipe for happiness and longevity? And he kind of said, he kind of riffed it off. He said, well, it'd probably be you'd wake up at half seven. You'd, you know, you'd, you'd have a nap during the day. You'd probably spend half an hour on social media. He said you'd probably spend seven to eight hours, you know, around friends and social activities. And he kind of broke it down like like as if a recipe for happiness for a day. Like what would if you if you were to kind of put happiness down to a day, a recipe for it, what would it kind of be in your thoughts? Well, I don't know, but it does remind me of a joke um, about a guy who goes to his doctor and says, how can I live longer? And the doctor says, well, you need to stop drinking. You need to stop eating bad food. You need to stop having loads of sex. You need to. He went up, he said, oh, well, that made me live longer. He said, I don't know, but it'll certainly feel like it's longer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. It is, it isn't bad, is it? It's not bad. That's great. I, I, I normally hate people who tell, you know, you edit, edit all this out at the start because, you know, oh my God, he's telling jokes. Um, so um, I think we know, so let me, let, me, let, me, let me answer that question slightly differently. We know what, we, we know what kills people sooner, right? So we know that loneliness 
is a really, if you were going to rank all of the health interventions to lead a longer life, you would stop smoking and loneliness would be right up the top there with it. Diet and exercise would actually be much lower down. So social contact is fundamentally important for all of us, um, introverts and extroverts alike. I mean, even introverts like being around other people. They just need time away to recharge. That what's, that's what makes an introvert and extrovert different is that um, introverts need time alone and away from other people, whereas extroverts don't so much. So social contact. So the fact that you said seven or eight hours with people, I think was what you said, wasn't it? I think that's absolutely yeah. critical. So that's that's a key part of it. Spend time with people that you like being with. Yeah, beautiful. That's a really nice one. Uh, one thing I want to get onto um, next is kind of the importance of attention and living with a sense of purpose. Because often nowadays it's, you know, it's hard. You know, a lot of the stories we're being sold as a society is the importance for material success. And often, you know, the age old wisdom of, you know, living with a sense of purpose is some one of the greatest kind of gifts you can have. And often it's, it's seldom celebrated um, when compared to success being material success. I wonder, can you talk about the importance of having the ability to focus your attention and also the importance of living with purpose? I know they're a little bit separate. And kind of big topics as well. Huge. Yeah. Why don't you just start with some easy, gentle questions? Right. So, okay, so let, me, uh, let me deal with both of those and I'll seamlessly plug both my books in the process of doing so. So perfect. Um, oh, I can't wait to hear this. Can't wait to hear how you do this. <laughs> I do it naturally as if like it was, it was unscripted. Um, so the subtitle of happiness by design, the first book is finding pleasure and purpose in everyday life. And I think if we're going to talk about living better lives, living happier, longer lives, we need to be very clear about what that means. And I think for all of us in one way or another, it's about living in ways that enable us to find the balance between things that we find on the one hand fun and things that we find fulfilling. And happy lives are ones that get the right balance for that person. It's not for me to tell you what that balance should be. Different people are different. Uh, but it's for you to work out what the balance between pleasure and purpose should be for your own life. And it's in your experiences. So that's the really fundamentally important thing, I think. It's not in the stories that you might tell about the things that you think should make you happy or the activities that you should do that should make you happy or the job that you should have that should make you happy. It's in your experiences day to day, moment to moment. And I think that that is really what living well means. And the reason I, I, I say it as explicitly about it being in the experiences is because it enables me to draw on the second thing that you said, which is in the second book, which is about material consumption. So in Happy Ever After, I talk about some of the narratives around the lives that we think we should lead in order to be happy, right? And one of those is get rich, become successful, be smart. All these things are correlated with happiness to a point, right? So poverty makes people miserable. And it's very clear that people, I don't want to like be... Uh, kind of glib and say that money doesn't make you happy. Money does make you happy if you haven't got any. Um, it's very attention-seeking. Poverty is very attention-seeking. Um, but once you get beyond having to pay attention to how you're going to feed the kids, pay the bills, the returns to income become much, much smaller. But we become addicted, right? Is that like It's pretty much like a drug, is that you can't have enough of it, right? The richer you get, the more you want and the more you need, and your aspirations change, you get adapted to whatever levels you're on. And so one of the things that we need to do, I think, as individuals and societies is to sort of chill out a little bit, step back and say, actually, have we reached the point at which we've got just enough? Um, have, we, have we reached the point at which we are consuming enough? Are we 
reaching a point where we're actually might be trading off some of the pleasure and purpose that we might be having in our daily experiences in order to accumulate more assets or to get a job that pays more money or to become more successful. Um, and so, so I think that's, that's, that's a question, not just for individuals, as, as I say, that's much more a societal level question. Cause I think one of the things is that we can write books like happiness by design and lots of people have written books of a similar sort of kind, although obviously not as good. Um, and, they're, they're all very much about what individuals can do for themselves. And that's all great. Of course, there's lots that we can do for ourselves, but we're living within social constraints and we're living particularly within the stories that we're told by our parents, by society, by friends and by ourselves about the life that we should be leading. And sometimes those you know, stories will be good for us. Of course, it's silly to say that you shouldn't live in a story because we've all have them, but we just need to be alert to the fact that they might be dragging us in a direction that wouldn't be enabling us to maximize pleasure and purpose over time. So find stuff that you like doing, find stuff that feels like it is worthwhile, has meaning in the experiences of it, not in the stories that you might tell about it. Wow. Well, one thing that really stands out to me from what you said was that sense of enough. And I think that's something that as a society we all struggle with understanding that thing of what is enough, that inherently the nature of the human experience is we struggle with greed, we struggle with jealousy. And as a result, we can often find it hard to find that point of what is enough. In all your research and kind of reading around this topic, are there any you know, practical suggestions of how we that? can reach a sense of understanding what is enough? And, and I just want to add one thing I was just going to say, because in terms of the money thing, I was reading some articles which you'd written before and you said, up to about 50,000, if people are earning, you know, the, there's a law of diminishing returns after you earn more than 50,000 euro, that if you earn 150 or 500,000, there's no correlation between that leading to more happiness. So like, it seemed like once you've got your basic needs met and you can pay for enough certain things, then it's about serving other people. And, and that was something else that I'd like to add on to it. It was about stopping focus and accumulating your own wealth. And Yeah, so, so a couple of things on that. I've just got to be a bit, serious and academic for a second is that we don't we we don't have any good randomized controlled trials where we allocate money to people randomly and then look at the causal effects of income on their happiness that's the ideal experiment i'd like to do right because that would show me there's some experiment there's some experiments starting in wales where they're actually going to give people 20 like a certain amount of fixed monthly income at some town in wales where they literally want to actually see what it is in terms of giving them, you know, someone was telling me about it yesterday. Yeah, like a universal basic income. We can come on to that if you want, but 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 that's the ideal. So that that's the ideal data for me, right? So all we've really got are data that are messy that show correlations between income and happiness, right? So there's all sorts of factors that would explain that association. So whatever I say is going to be heavily caveated by the fact that we can't make very strong claims about causal mechanisms. Um, but it, it is suggestive, the data, and the different data sets show different things and different points at which you have just enough. But all of the data in one way or another are suggestive of the fact that you get significant returns to happiness when you're poor, when you get a little bit more money, but you get much less returns when you've already got enough or when you have you know, 50,000, 100,000, wherever the point might be. And I think this comes back to the, to the early point about attention, right? So when you've got nothing, you're paying attention to money. When you've got a lot, you're probably paying attention to money as well, a lot there, right? Have I got the right investments? Have I got the right stocks and shares? Am I rich enough compared to the next rich person? Whereas when you're in in the middle, it's almost like a sweet spot in a way where you're kind of getting on with experiencing your life. And and what you you want money to be is like a referee in a football game, 
right? They always say referees have the best games when no one knows they're there, right? And that's kind of how you want money to be. You want it to be there because you need it, but not paying attention to it. You're paying attention and getting on with the game of life, right? Actually, this is the first time that I've used that. And that's, that's a beautiful, that's, a, a, that's one of the best one, analogies I've ever heard. Yeah. That was and really it, good. Thank you Jeez, so much. Jesus, Paul, you, you are olive. Mate, you brought it out of me. It's that first question <laughs> of what fruit I'd be. That's what set the scene. That's what's it's really a banana. So a banana um, referee. No, I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, so I think that's what, so that's what we want to do is, 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 is find that point at which we're not paying attention to it. And I think as you've identified, that's, that's really difficult because not least because the social narrative is to accumulate more, right? So if I tell you, I'm going to go and take a job that's going to pay me less money than I'm earning at the moment. I'd have to justify that, wouldn't I? You'd be like, you'd be looking at me like you're some sort of weirdo. I'd have to explain, I might have better colleagues. I might have a shorter commute. I might have more time with my family. All the things that would contribute towards my happiness, but I'd have to justify all of that. Whereas if I said, oh, I'm going to go and earn more money somewhere else, you'd be like, great, brilliant, fantastic, right? So, so the sort of lay rationalism, as it's called, is, is kind of geared towards ever more status, success, and money. Um, and so being, being able to get off that treadmill, as I say, is, is really difficult for any individual to do alone. Um, I guess one of the first steps, you know, you'll know this about, and you've spoken to other people about this in all sorts of different ways, the first step to behavior change in many kind of therapies or elsewhere is acceptance, right? That's the first, the first bit is to accept something about yourself and about how you are in the world. And I think maybe one of the ways that we overcome some of these um, obstacles, barriers, and stories is to have some acceptance of the fact that they're present and that they're there when we might be driven by them. Because sometimes we can be completely oblivious to the fact that we might be living in these kinds of narratives. So I think in answer to your question, it's not a very good answer to your question, um, but I think it's a start for us to be accepting of the fact that we might be driven by some of these, you know, kind of uh, these sorts of stories in ways that might not make us happy, either individually or as a society. Like, it's almost like where, you know, where there's cultural programming and cultural narratives that we're fulfilling. And I see it in myself that there's, I keep catching myself out that like kind of going, geez, I need to work harder. And, I need, you know, there's these narratives that keep going on because we've been trying to slow down and it's really difficult to slow down when you've had years of experience of going full tilt because you think you need to, you know, quicker, faster, more. And to slow that narrative down is challenging. And that's my Yeah, well, just, just, just very quickly on that is that there's a lot of literature on how, you know, having no motivation, no goals and no ambitions or whatever is bad for us, right? And so there's a lot of stuff about, you know, goal-focused behaviors, goal orientation and stuff. There's actually much less literature on it being too much, right? And it's absolutely true that, not enough is bad for you, but it's equally true that too much is bad for you as well. And we've never, we sort of tend to focus our attention in research and in discussions on the, the lower end, if you like, um, and not enough attention to the, to the upper end where you can sort of have too much or do too much. Cause, cause there's those, those classical fisher, you know, the Mexican fisherman story about the, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. where, where there's the, you know, if anyone hasn't, you, you can probably tell it better than me. I think I'll butcher it. I think I'm in a bit I'll of a butcher, but it's the, the basic narrative that, you know, the way, there's, there's a fisherman and he goes out and he spends his day fishing and he comes back at lunchtime and he makes love with his wife and they spend time with his kids and then he goes playing guitar with his friends and they like they have a beautiful time and the fisherman the American fisherman meets some businessman and goes well why don't you like just spend a little longer at fish you'll earn more money and in a year or two you can build a factory and then another year or two you can build another factory and then you can build loads of factories and then he says and then what and then what and it keeps going on it keeps going on and on and he says uh, 
And then when I retire and I have loads of money, then I can fish in the morning for a couple hours and then I can make love with my wife and I can play guitar at my friends in the evening. And it was the exact same thing that she was doing now. And it's a bit like, as I said, there's all these cultural narratives that it's more quicker, faster. Yet when I was reading your articles earlier, it was about almost like doing less and being satisfied with the simpler little things rather than the big nuggets. Like, because often we can get caught up with the bigger nuggets of the perfect job that's giving us passion and fulfilling us. But ultimately, it can be about, as you said, spending more time with your friends, you know, getting a dog or spending more time outside of the simple, basic little things. Yeah, I do think I would just add, I think that, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. Although I would just add, I mean, it isn't a caveat, well, maybe, maybe it is a bit, is that we need a distribution of people across, uh, across the whole of society, right? So you don't want, like this idea, there's a sort of one size fits all approach to living well would be evolutionarily stupid, um, right? Because we would never have evolved to be where we are if everybody was the same, right? So it, purely from an efficiency perspective, it makes sense for societies to have different people in it. <laughs> and so it's about finding out where you are on that distribution across whatever dimension we might discuss. You know, your attitude to risk, for example, you know, societies would never have got anywhere if everyone was very cautious and equally would have died out if everyone had been really mistaking. Well-functioning societies have a distribution of people that take risks and don't across Amazing different dimensions. Point. And that, I think, is that's the message that I um, want to try and get out. Oh, by the way, that's a seamless uh, segue into the Duck Rabbit podcast, which is the new podcast that I've been working on. Yeah, I, I, I watched getting... a little. I, I watched yeah. a little bit where you talked about the duck and the rabbit and that. We tend to, when, when we look at it and if we, sorry if I'm jumping in, but if we yeah, see no, jump the, in, jump in. if we see the duck, we tend to, and we believe we're a duck, we tend to surround ourselves with duck, create conversation around to reinforce why we're ducks and, you know, tend to see ourselves as separate from a rabbit. And it's kind of to talk about how society can be more polarized and very separate. Exactly. That is exactly it. For anybody who hasn't seen the duck rabbit illusion, take a, a look. It's very simple. You can see one image there immediately. And it's much harder to see the other one. Um, and that is a nice metaphor for how we become, it, we can often become quite polarized on many issues is that you see it one way, it's hard to see it the other way. And as, as you just rightly said, surround yourself with people who see it like you do. You know, we like, much as we like, most of us say, and especially in academia, we'll say we like disagreement and we like argument. Actually, we don't really, right? We want people to agree with us and to nod their heads rather than shake them. So it's much easier and much more comforting to surround ourselves with people like us. Um, till in till in the end, we think the whole world should be like us. When, as I said before, you know, celebrating difference and difference of opinion as well <laughs> is is really where we ought to be reminding ourselves of much more. And moving on from that, like the sense of one thing I've noted, or in, uh, as I've mature, matured, relatively speaking, I was going to say you want to, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, caveat there. But uh, like growing up and going to school, a lot of my friends were all the same age, and now we're. When I say they we probably are in your class, yeah, 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 they were in our <laughs> class, and and similarly through college, they're, they're they're of a similar age, and now we've kind of gotten this stage. We swim in the sea every day at sunrise, and there's a wonderful broader spectrum of society from the age of seventy down to the age of twenty, and they're close friends, and yet they're very different age groups, many of them from very different backgrounds, and we share a collective experience. And I wonder, is another key to our sense of you know, building a more resilient and happier communities is a sense of having friends of different age groups because it helps us to be more empathetic and compassionate. That's a super question. So just before we get on to that, I just want to 
ask you a question. Do, do all Irish people swim in the sea? No. Uh, nah. No, because I only asked because that. Because there's a broad I, spectrum of people here. You see, there's a diversity <laughs> of people. Well, it's only, and some it's swim in the sea that... and some climb mountains. <laughs> some climb. No, I, I say that facetiously, but, you know, I kind of, all the, I've got, I had, a, I had a PhD student who every time she went home at Christmas would send a picture from having jumped in the sea on Christmas. Uh, all the family and friends, everybody would jump in the sea on Christmas morning. Um, but the um, but the point about age groups is really, really fascinating and also very timely. So I, I've been struck by how our responses to COVID around the world have been almost entirely determined by people my age, right? I mean, men around 50-ish, a bit, you know, plus or minus a few years, um, almost without exception. I mean, there are some, 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 some exceptions, but most of the advisors and the policymakers come from a very narrow age range. Um, and that is that is interesting. I mean, we don't want to go into this in too much more detail, but there is a, as you'll be familiar with maybe from the happiness literature, there is a quite a significant U-shape in life satisfaction, at least. That's one way in which we might measure happiness, asking people how satisfied they are with their lives. And it actually shows up in pretty much every data set everywhere around the world. Right? This is about the most robust finding that we know from happiness is that you basically start off happy and you end up happy. But the bit in the middle is the bit that's miserable. I'm at the age where I'm just now coming. I'm, sort of, I'm at, the, at, the, at, the, at the sort of at the end of the U and I'm sort of starting to come back up the U bend. Um, and, and I'm going to get happy the over the next. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I've been in literally at the bottom of the toilet. Um, you guys <laughs> have got the toilet to look forward to. So that's one thing. <laughs> That's one thing that makes me happier. Um, now, that might be, so we find this, whether we put controls in, whether we don't put controls in, whether you've got kids, whether you haven't got kids and so on. So it could be something quite basic and primal. And, and, and in fact, there are evidence when uh, zookeepers report the happiness of primates, um, they get a U-shape in happiness as well, right? So the midlife crisis could be something that is literally you know, wired into us, which could have something potentially to do with existential dread. Right. So when you get to about my age, you're reminded of the fact that you're not going to live forever. Um, and your attention is drawn to the fact that at one point, at some point, you're going to die. When you're young, you don't think about that at all. You're going to live, live forever. You take all sorts of risks and you're mad and you, you know, no one ever dies. Um, when you get old, you know, you, by the time you're 80, you realize that you're not going to live for another 20 years. So the decisions have been made by people who are in that existential dread age group. And that might potentially have had a significant effect. I think it probably has had quite a significant effect on how we viewed and responded to COVID. Um, and it does remind us that when we're talking about diversity of perspective in decision-making, we want diversity across a whole range of characteristics and opinions and beliefs and thoughts and age. And I think actually probably if we think about it, it's the one dimension by which we kind of have almost like an apartheid. Uh, you mentioned swimming in the sea with people of different ages, but, but most of the time we don't, don't really mix with people that are you know, 20 or 30 years younger or older than me, right? Um, unless they're in your family, I guess. So I think one of the really interesting questions about community um, is, is how we might be able to, to sort of break down those age and cohort, you know, uh, quite significant boundaries, actually, that exist between people of different ages and cohorts. Sorry, that was a long answer. That was quite a, that was a very long answer to your question, but I apologize. I went off on a no, it's great. But, um, I think you did wonderful. Uh, like it's, it's becoming more apparent to me the more I start learning about even soil, like to make to make soil and 
soil more stronger, it's about diversity. And similarly, as a society, the more diverse a society, the more resilient it is. I think we spoke to uh, Rob Hopkins recently, and he he gave the example that if you go to a bar anywhere in the UK, typically there are three different types of beers available on draft. And he spoke about going to a bar in Boston and there were 80 different types of, of beer. And he spoke about, you know, back 20 years ago, if you went to Bath, they had a slightly different... Because you've got all the Irish people in Boston, isn't it? Because like, they have all the beers, <laughs> isn't it? That's why. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, and he spoke about how traditionally there were different food cultures in different towns and there were different shops. And now society is becoming more globalised and we're becoming more homogenised. Can you talk about the importance of diversity in communities, in decision makings, as you in spoke, to make well, communities more resilient and more happier. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, it is certainly the case that the evidence suggests that diversity of perspective is better in decision making. When you're when you're thinking of innovation and creativity and advancement, if you're doing a if you're doing a very mundane sort of rote task, then diversity doesn't isn't so important, right? Um, it matters more for performance when there's an in, when you want to innovate or create, um, and so it's interesting that you that you that you then drew that parallel with with soil and diversity of not just people but other aspects of the human and non-human condition. Um, the, the the challenge becomes when, as I said before, it's like we it's just so much easier to be around people that are like us. Um, and actually drawing on something that you said earlier about helping other people, right, is there's a really significant literature people will talk about empathy, right, because that's like our, the, our ability to literally walk in the shoes of somebody else. Well, it's a lot easier to walk in their shoes if they have the same size feet. So we have, so we have a lot of empathy towards people that are like us. So actually when you're, when you're thinking about pro-social behavior or caring for other people, it's actually not empathy that you want. You want compassion. It's a more detached, less emotional, if you like, um, sense of caring for other people, because that enables you then to literally see who is suffering most, who might not be most like you. Um, so I think um, removing ourselves sometimes from that emotion of, of empathy, of caring, like we make empathy sound like it's a good thing. And actually, a lot of the time it's harmful and instead we should replace it with compassion. Takes us a little bit away from the diversity point that you made. I mean, I, it, it, it's just it, it, I kind of all the answers, and certainly not certainly not in a podcast today. But it's breaking down some of those barriers that we, and it is it is acceptance again in ourselves, right? So I I kind of always you know pride myself on being an academic who likes disagreement and argument, but I have to remind myself that you know I'm wired to just like people that like me and agree with me and nod, um, and so I just have to push myself out of that in order to be genuinely diverse not just across attributes and things that are observable but points of view and opinion which can sometimes make us feel quite uncomfortable when people disagree yeah yeah and that boils back kind of to the sense of if we do want to evolve as humans we need to get comfortable with being a bit of discomfort and that often we that's do. where we grow we do. and we do i think i just want to remind i keep saying that about you know the fact that well functioning societies have a distribution of people if we can remind ourselves of that I think that's going to be helpful. The other thing to also remind ourselves of, when we look at the duck-rabbit illusion, whether we see a duck or whether we see a rabbit, we see an animal, right? So there's at least some similarity there. <laughs> and so reminding us ourselves about what makes us similar, right? I think you see that a lot in the political discourse, particularly in North America and uh, 
you know, sort of polarization of views and stuff. But, you know, most people want, you know, good jobs, you know, decent families, nice housing. You know, you, you, you kind of want those things wherever you sit on the political spectrum. Totally. Yeah, very true. Can I move the conversation now away from diversity? I'd love to move it into practical. So you... You kind of help with no, well-being. don't talk to an academic at the LSE about practical stuff. I do, because <laughs> listen, this is all fascinating. We're using big words and Stephen's having fun here, kind of mental. I can see his brain ticking over going, mm, yes, mm, yes. But I genuinely, for anyone listening, I want to bring this land, this back in the soil and in the roots again. So what are some practical tips? You are, right. you are, you're, you kind of help with well-being and you help kind of, you know, discuss this with policymakers and things. Like what are things that people can do? Anyone listening, who's kind of feeling a bit crap and feeling a bit overwhelmed with life and confused with all the cultural narratives. What are practical, basic things that people can do to feel better? Uh, Yeah, it's a really good question. So I have to say that there is no one size fits all approach, as we said before, right? I can't, anyone who, any, any, any happiness guru or whatever you might want to call somebody or happiness expert or whatever, um, who says do this is probably selling snake oil when they're, when they're saying this is a one-size-fits-all approach for everybody. Right? Okay, so, good caveat. Now, tell us so, a few. It's a good caveat. <laughs> so, so having said that, I'm going to say some things that are really, really fucking obvious, but overlooked, right? So go outdoors, listen to music, spend time with people you like being with, help other people, have some new, new experiences. Right? Those five, you did those five things. If you did, if you did, you know, any one or more of those things for a tiny little bit longer each day, I pretty much guarantee you'd be happy. Now, all of us have constraints over our time. It's the single scarcest resource there is, right? I mean, literally, it's the scarcest resource. You can beg, borrow, and steal money. You can't get back time that you've used, right? Um, so, but we all have a little bit of discretion, a little bit of wiggle room, no matter how busy we are in our lives. 10 minutes here, five minutes there where we can do one or more of those things. So, so those are really simple. That they're yeah. go outside, spend go time outdoors. with friends, listen, listen to, to music, music, have new experiences. And help other people. Oh, help other people. Yeah, it's a good one. I like that one. Yeah. Yeah, Five, yeah that's a really good one because I, I want to celebrate the selfishness of selflessness, right? I want, to, I want us to remind ourselves how good we feel when we help other people. It's great that they benefit as well, but I feel a little bit better about myself too. Right. So these are obvious but overlooked insights. They're the five things. And what you need to do, I'm now starting to preach at you, but what you need to do is you need to design those into your life. You can't just have intentions to do it. We know intentions are weak, right? I, I could intend to do all sorts of stuff that never happens. I could just talk a lot. But I need to embed it into my daily practice, into my daily routines, into my life. I need to make it easy for myself to do it. So that's where the design power comes in. It's not willpower. That's, that's, that's weak. No one's got willpower. Design power is what matters. Making it, implementing the intentions into your daily experiences. That's, that's, that's the only way, really, that you're going to do any, any of those five or five. So that's like planning it in, scheduling it, getting social exactly. support, talk, exactly. join a club, a hiking club, a bird watching club, you know, exactly. Going- yeah, that type of thing. Exactly. I had a, I've got a, I had a, a master student on one of my programs this last year who, who um, I think we called it, it was it planned spontaneity or organized spontaneity. And he was doing it with couples and sex. So he was getting couples to plan when they were going to have sex, which you kind of feel like it's a bit sort of takes the fun out of it. But if they weren't having sex anyway, right, then that's better than not. And actually, I think he found a little bit of a, a, a hit on happiness when people were planning 
doing things that we would otherwise consider to be a spontaneous act. Wow, that's like a juxtaposition. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, pretty very cool. Nice. I like that. I really appreciate that. Uh, one thing I'd love to talk about, Paul, is the importance of gratitude. It's often seen as this heebie-jeebie thing that I got to sit and be grateful on my meditation journal and I got to sit and... But but there is research research now showing that 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 sense of gratitude links in with optimism, links in with that sense of appreciation and the sense of presence. Can you talk about gratitude and its relation with happiness? Yeah, it's really important. Please. And I think it's... Yeah, no, thank you. We'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, I'm just really happy to be on talking to you genuinely. Um, I'm very grateful of that fact. Um, And yeah, I know, I know, that was really fucking cheesy. Um, So uh, you can edit that bit out. So um, we, we, um, it's just, it's a sort of reminding ourselves of, our fortune of of just being grateful for things and and it's anyway you can do that in any number of ways and again i don't i don't like this sort of one size one size fits all but like at the end of the day write down three things that went well or three things that you feel grateful about i can't really i don't don't really want to do that but if i I can find ways in which i might, might do that in a sort of lighter soft touch way then just reminding ourselves of the things that we can be thankful for and 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 actually thankful to other people for as well. Um, thanking someone is a really, it's a really not you know when it's genuine and authentic, you know, not a sort of contrived kind of have a nice day kind of way. But when it's a sort of genuine appreciation of of other people, they feel good. That's actually like helping yourself to help other people, helping other people to help yourself. They feel good, and you feel good too. And it kind of is again why we don't why we don't do more of it if we know that it's good for us. It's because it's obvious but overlooked. We're not we're not embedding it again. You don't want to make it contrived, but we're not reminding ourselves of the times and the ways in which we should be grateful of things. Um, and and that's where there's a really interesting sort of narrative around luck, right? Which is that how much we hate that narrative, right? Because it has no agency. All the stories that we like have coherence. They have um, some structure and they have agency to them. Right. Luck has no agency. Randomness has no agency. So people will say things like you make your own luck. Well, you can't make your own randomness. Right. I mean, that's just that's, you know, as much as we like to think we can control things, we can't control randomness. But we but we like to. But actually, do you know, a lot of how if you were to reflect on your life as I were mine, a lot of the things that have turned out well and badly have just been random. I've just been the result of being in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time and sort of celebrate. People don't like that, but I actually like celebrating that. That makes me feel more grateful. You know, I feel grateful of having been incredibly lucky. Um, and I, 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 just, I still continue to feel lucky. I mean, we're very lucky to be able to be doing this today, reminding ourselves of the fortune that comes with that. Um, it will be a significant part. And there, as you say, there is some really nice evidence on it too. Yeah, I think I think, I think it's almost like, Back to, and as you were saying, like, you know, the, the cultural narratives and the stories we have around happiness, that it's, you know, money and fame and status and good jobs and houses and marriage. And these are the typical narratives around happiness and some of the things that we need. But then I think ultimately, the more you can kind of be grateful in the simple daily things, and even saying it, I sound so simple, but I see it in my own life that the more I can slow down and kind of go like this morning, it was lashing rain all day. Like, and my normal narrative would be go, what a manky day. You know, but I, I remember I left the house this morning and I was going, right, how can I actually enjoy this rain and see the beauty in it? And I was walking along playing that game in my own head and going, 
Jeez, the trees look nice. There's a nice smell. Okay, what else do I have here? And I was playing this game with myself and it was actually kind of pleasant to actually turn the table on what normally the story would be. Oh, what a manky day. It's wet. It's awful. And I'm so busy and now I'm wet and I have to sit and do work and I'm wet and oh, boo-hoo. You know, and the voice in my head. Anyway, welcome. So to I'm sort of looking at you with both this sort of expression on my face is sort of mostly awe and a little bit what a weirdo. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's a sort of combination of those. Of those, of those uh, Welcome to, to my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. I wonder. Is like gratitude almost the exact opposite or antithesis of envy and jealousy? Is that what it is? Because mm. jealousy and envy is very external. It's very focused on what others have. Whereas gratitude is almost like an appreciation of what we have and a sense of presence. Like, say, for example, I have this bar here. Normally the bits that I enjoy most are the first bit and the end bit, like the U-shape that you talked about, life, <laughs> that the bit in the middle can be just a bit, but the, the first bit and the last bit you appreciate, it's like, oh, that first bite, my God, it's delicious. And the last bite, oh, it's nearly over. And I think it is gratitude, that sense of <laughs> internal savouring of what we have, understanding that it's passing and jealousy and envy is this external thing that we're kind of projecting Ooh, on others. Good point, Stephen. You're so smart. Thanks, Dave. I did like that. <laughs> well done. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it is interesting you see, you're, you're right in the sense that there's a relativity so i was just saying it sort of reminds me of you know this hirschman's hirschman's tunnel effect you know this idea that you're sitting so you're basically sitting in a traffic jam right you've got two two lanes neither of which are moving right um and the other lane starts moving and you're sat still right you've got two things that go off in your mind one is well, I'm sure the first one that most people will think about, I wish I was in the other lane. Um, but secondly is the fact, oh, we're going to start moving soon too. So one acts as a comparison that you're doing less well. The other acts as a signal that you're going to start doing well yourself. And actually you can frame, like lots of decision problems can be framed in that way um, with the relative comparison effect or an endowment effect, essentially, in some sense, or a signal. Um, and I think we often draw attention to the comparison. Oh, look, the other cars are going, like you would think, oh, I should be in the other lane. But actually, what you should also be thinking as well, too, is that we're going to start moving soon. So I think reminding ourselves, you know, of the fact that we're going to start moving <laughs> will actually make us feel better because you're still going to move in the same way at the same rate, right? Um, you're going to be a lot happier if you just stick with the fact, great, we're going to move rather than they got there first. Yeah, totally. Cool. I got one. Okay, I've got an interesting moment. I've been pondering there for a little bit. And I played this game. We interviewed a guy last week and I kind of played the game with him. And I'm going to give a kind of context of it. So back to I was telling you about the blue zones, these long lived happy people, you know, and it was this study. And what, what, what the researchers ended up saying was that these people were the product of their environment, that the healthy choice was the easy choice. You know, it wasn't because there was unhealthy choices at the time. The, health, the easy choice was to eat the beans in the garden and eat the lettuce in the garden and the cabbage from the garden and... You know, there was no travel and there probably wasn't any TV. So it was the healthy choice was the easy choice. And I wonder now, like when I'm thinking of, like you said about designing happiness, and I'm thinking yeah. back to our societies and our communities, and I'm kind of going, how can we factor in? Like if we were to play an imagination game here. Okay, so an imagination game with Professor Paul. What would we do to kind of like to try to design our towns or our communities or anything to be more fulfilling for us, to be happier, to where we're, you know, how, how do we go about this? Well, it's an interesting question you asked about the town. So I sort of just go on a stream of consciousness of, of a few things that come to my mind when you asked that. But when you said about towns and cities is that we know like some of the happiness data, again, 
reasonably clear on this, although, of course, you can't really establish causal mechanisms through this, but is that we know that the least happy places in most countries around the world are the most densely populated and tend to be the capital cities of most of the most of the towns and cities. Like, like you know, London is the sort of least, least happy place in the UK. Wow. Yeah, um, it's probably, yet it's probably the most desirable in a sense. Well, like... that's a really interesting, so that's a really interesting distinction between the things that we desire and want and the things that make us happy because we pay attention to a different set of attributes in our decisions that we do in our experiences. Um, and so um, there's lots of reasons why, why, you know, capital cities might be less happy, but we want to be, we want to be making, one of the things that's really hard about London is just getting around. I mean, it's not so much, it's not so hard at the moment, but um, you know, generally is that we want to make it easier for people to be able to be outside, to be in fresh air, to, you know, be engaging with, nature to be engaging with other people i mean i having been born in the east end of london i never wasn't really around nature very much so but um all of us we're this is, this is, as, as, as no doubt you're you're not only too well this term biophilia which is kind of really you know essentially that we enjoy being around um, nature and, and all of us i think to some large degree do even if we say we don't so even if I might say oh, I come from these and I'm used to urban cities and stuff, but actually you put me in a bit of greenery or by the sea or whatever, and I'm actually happier and calmer um, in ways that I don't predict. So you can't always rely on what people do and say as a guide to what's going to make them uh, happy. Um, so I'll be designing in, I mean, it's a very simple answer to your question really, is to design in the five things that we talked about before. Design in ways in which we can listen to music, go outdoors, help other people, have new experiences. Um, and then whatever the other one was, spend time with people that we like being with. That's okay, what we so need that, to be designing. Okay, in. okay. So, so let's let's go let's go physical. So that's those five things are wonderful. So if we, say if we pick a couple of topics, like so, say in education, how do we bake that in in our in our town planning in our jobs? Like how do we get, get practical with this? Because like you've got so much content and knowledge in your brain and experience with this and those five things. And I kind of go, okay, we live in a small town of Greystones. It's twenty thousand people. It's you know they're well educated, kind of you know by and large and i'm kind of going okay how how would we if we were if we wanted to dedicate our life to serving other people how would we try to apply these five things to our little town like in a practical sense like town planning and kind of education and amenities and local economics and all these basic things there now i've asked a a, a question there no it's great i mean it's a it's a great it's a great it's a great question i mean i i kind of uh, you know, my get my, my my sort of easy way out of that as well is that 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 isn't my job. I'm not I'm not interested in that in, in that practical implement, implementation stuff. I'll just you know generate evidence that people can then go on and use. But that's a silly answer. Um, I mean, in the in the well, it's actually a true answer, but um, <laughs> it's not a most helpful answer to you. Um, in the education system, it's, it is really really interesting that we do get fixated on the objective of exam success, don't we? For, for example, you know, like we have league, leagues, leagues, you know, tables of all sorts of indicators to do with exam success. What about if we started started having indicators to do with how well the children experience their time at school, right? And and actually, by the way, happier kids do better anyway, right? So it's not like you're making a choice between these outcomes. Um, you might actually have more time in schools for kids that want to move around a bit more, right? Or a bit freer. A lot of people, um, especially boys, although not always boys. Um, you know, are more, uh, uh, I've got lots of energy, you know, want to be moving around, and we make them sit down for hours on end. And we tell them off when they fidget, and we tell them off when they get up and move. It's like, what about we just get people move around a bit more? Right? Yeah. I mean, that's just very simple, a really simple intervention into the schools. Let the kids move around a bit more. I mean, that's, that's like, that's a very straightforward thing to do. 
Let them go outside for five minutes. Just like, actually let them just go outside, come back in again. They'll probably learn just as well as, well as hard. No, actually they'll learn more and they want to learn more. So, you know, there are, there, there, there are little simple things. And by the way, with education, and I mean, there's lots of things that we could do. We could let, we could let teenage kids start school later. No, no, no 13, 14, 15 year old wants to get up at seven o'clock in the morning, go to school. Take some ages to wake up. Let them, let them start, start school later. Um, shorten the summer, summer, the summer, the shorten the summer holidays so that the working class kids are not disadvantaged to the extent that they are uh, by being off, you know, school for six weeks. Whereas the middle class kids take their kids to museums and galleries and take them to France to learn French. Um, uh, change when the exams are. Uh, working class kids in the UK, particularly boys, do uh, less well in years of World Cups and European Championships. Why? Because they're choosing between revising and watching the football. Well, just move when exams are. Right? There's lots of there's lots of really simple things that we can do that if we really cared about people's welfare that we could do almost in a in a um, heartbeat. Um, designing in towns. I mean, that's I think that's one of the things you keep coming back to. So let me see if I can. I can say a little bit uh, more about I'm that. I'm loving I mean, this, Paul. You're doing brilliant with this. Yeah, this is great. This is fabulous. <laughs> good <laughs> riffing, so good improv. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I mean, I don't know. I mean, the transport, it's, 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 it's a really interesting question about transport systems is that we, we, we're we kind of building transport systems in ways to make commuting potentially more E- is easier but are we making it are we making being able to access our family and friends any easier by doing that i don't know i mean that would be one way in which you might sort of recast some of how we planned uh public services if uh, public public services and public transport if we were thinking about the interconnectedness of communities rather than just whether uh, and how easily people can get can, can you know get to and from work um i don't know i mean that would be that would be you know, just just sort of sort of imagine reco- like sort of Having that, having the map in front of you of the interconnectedness of different communities and different families and different people, maybe we'd have a different public. Good job with the imagination game, system. Paul Dolan. Great job, yeah. great job. Yeah, thank can, you. Can I bring something very practical? Because yeah. I've been married before, and I'm getting married again later this year, and I'm curious about the link not, between not, uh, not to the same person. No, not to the same person. No, Good distinction. No, okay. no, okay. no, married and divorced and now going to get married again. And I'm curious about the link between marriage and relationships and happiness. Because, you know, all of us have watched Walt Disney and I see my two daughters watching it. And, you know, now that the stories have changed now, like when we were growing up, it was always they got hap- lived happily ever after. And now you see other narratives where like, you know, in Frozen, Anna and Elsa, they were happy by themselves, you know, which was nice to see. So again, you know what I'm going to say. This is my boring answer. There's and no I know there's a caveat. Size. Well, yeah, no, there's that. just no one. Si- no, yeah, yeah. Well, you know that you'd expect that any academic would say that. But there's no, but there's no one size fits all approach, right? That's the that's the thing. But what? But but there is in the narratives, and particularly about women, and particularly about single women, and particularly about single child free women. That you like, you see a woman of forty who's never been married, never had children. You go, oh, bless. You know, maybe one day you meet the right guy and that'll all change. Well, maybe one day you meet the meet the wrong guy and that'll all change. I mean, there's actually, you know, again, we've got no causality. We've got no randomized controlled trials of allocating people to different conditions. Um, but, you know, single women, single people, child-free people doing perfectly well. I mean, you know, lots of them are. Um, lots of married people are doing very badly. It's, it's, it's working out. It's navigating your way through what works best for you. And that's, and I can't, I mean, I know that sounds a boring answer, but it's true. Um, I, I, it'd be a mistake to fall into the traps of saying 
that there is a particular type of relationship that's best for you. We know that social connectedness and intimacy is important for us, right? So find ways in which you can have that. That may be through marriage. It might not be. It might be through being single. It might be being in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. It could be whatever what, what, whatever works for you and the people that you're with. Uh, but having good relationships is the bit that makes us similar. That's the duck rabbit. That's the, that's the animal. The animal is that the good relationships is true of all of us. The duck rabbit is working out which type. Good. That's a good one. I like, I like that. I like that. that. Can, can I, I, like, I, I know we're running out of time here and there's one topic which I'd love to talk briefly about, the relationship between mobile phones and social media and our happiness and how yeah. for any, anyone listening, how best can we navigate this? Because it's something that infringes on my life, infringes on my kids' life, infringes on your life, infringes on everyone's life, and it's affecting our happiness. And just wondering, can you talk about, one, the impact of social media and happiness, and two, any research or anything you've heard about how to manage this relationship so that we can be happier? Well, it's such a good question. When you know the answer to it, come back and tell me, because yeah. I'd love to know how to, how to manage my phone use better. I mean, I actually really would, you know, genuinely. I mean, I, I would love to know how to do that. I mean, one thing is that we want to be careful not to overstate the problem. Um, when we had the wireless radio, <laughs> the wireless, <laughs> that makes me sound so old. When the radio came in, it was going to be like the end of books and the end of people, like the end of civilization, right? The radio was going to completely wipe out humanity, right? And the television was going to do the same. And everything that we've had, every technological advance, the narratives around it have been exactly the same. And by and large, you know, that hasn't happened. <laughs> so I would only get too, like, too carried away um, with how bad the next technological advance is compared to the last one, which was going to ruin us all. Um, having said that, there is some suggestive evidence, and I'm not, you know, again, this is not causal, that... In the US in particular, to the UK to some extent, that there is a slight, there has been an increase in reported levels of anxiety, depression, self-harming behaviours in young girls um, who have had access to smartphones at a much earlier age than the millennials had access to smartphones. And that is a little troubling because that takes to us, it takes us to about 25 for our brains to fully develop, right? Um, some people's never do, of course, but our ability to adopt someone else's perspective is the last bit that comes. <laughs> um, and that takes and that takes a long time. It's why teenagers are so selfish. I mean, they're, they're meant to be selfish. It's the whole point of being a teenager. Um, and so it takes a long time for our brains. And if you're getting addicted to anything during the developmental processes, then there's a problem. There's, you know, there is a potential problem there. Um, and how do we manage addictions? how do we manage addictions? We make it harder for ourselves. Like the simple behavioral science lesson for most things, if you want to do something, make it easy. If you don't want to do something, make it hard, <laughs> right? I mean, that's like, that's the behavioral science 101 lesson, right? So how can you, how can you make it harder for you to do something that you don't want to do? Um, the trouble is, of course, this is so accessible, so easy and always present. So take it away from your from yourself in some in some way to make it just a little bit harder for you to access it and to use it um you know that is a challenge when other people are also engaging in it as well there's this really cool so i won't, I won't take up time i want to maybe ask um something else before we have to go it's been a fantastic hour by the way the time has flown um but there's this really cool study where um people were, were you know basically came off i think facebook for about a month or whatever weeks or whatever it doesn't matter the exact details and they and they all reported being happier 
from being away from the tech, from from the tech, right? So they were they they had the experience of feedback that they were happier. Then they were asked at the end what they would be, uh, what all, that actually ought to be, what they would be willing to pay, right? Or to, to be paid to stay off, right? Because they've made less happy. But no, it's the, it's the other way around. They're willing to pay to go back on again, right? So that doesn't make sense, does it? And whatever, you've got the feedback and the experience that this is actually good for you not to be there, but uh, everyone else is there, aren't they? And I need to see what everyone else is up to and see what's going on and the FOMO thing. And I want to go back on. So it's a, it's a really difficult challenge when even when we might directly have the feedback ourselves that it's good for us, for ourselves, to ourselves, that we still want to do it again. Right now, that is a proper addiction in some sense. There's something else that's going on. And of course, the tech firms know this, right? I mean, they are design, you know, they are, you know, designing these technologies in ways to make us addicted. So I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes being these sort of gentle nudges of ourselves might not be the answer. Maybe we need some legislation and we need some regulation and we need, you know, to be shoved away from being on our phones all the time. I like that. Paul, you're brilliant. You're a great laugh. You really are. For for someone that's so into literature, in, into academia, you're a great laugh. You're, as we'd say in Ireland, you're a great crack. A great crack. You, uh, for, for anyone yeah. listening, can you talk about your books and where people can find more about you, Paul? Yeah, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to do that again. So Happiness by Design and Happy Ever After are my two trade books um, available, you know, wherever people get their books. Um, and then the Duck Rabbit podcast is, is my most recent sort of uh, thing. Um, we've recorded five episodes of that, which are available on uh, anywhere people get their podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, whatever, wherever people get them from. Um, and and what, kind of, what kind of guests do you have on that? Um, yeah, so that's, um, I, I, I talked to... Um, are they professor like people or are they more lay people i've tried to make the podcast a, 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 a less academic than you might typically get from an academic institution um and so i have interviews with 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 people who have interesting perspectives you know i do i do one on social class where i talk to a, a plumber in glasgow who went to one of the most poshest schools uh in england um and so i talk to you know like, but also talk to people from politics on the um, security and liberty i talked to steve baker who's a tory mp in the uk so there's lots of different people and then i sort of wrap it up with an academic chat at the end and then i have a little rant at the end about what i think <laughs> the final words before the final, you know get the last word in because you know that you're going to get the final word now so i'm gonna leave that to you. Uh, <laughs> lovely beautiful well that was great thanks paul thanks great so much paul you're brilliant you're a great laugh you really are thanks so much for your time and for your wisdom and for all you do Thank you so much. I hope at some point we could actually meet face to face. That'd be amazing. Oh, I'd love, love that. It. I'd love that. Thanks again, Paul. You're brilliant. Thank you. You have been brilliant. Thank you so much. That was a great chat chatting with Professor Paul Dolan from the London School of Economics. Uh, five tips which I love the most was spend time outside. Listen to music every day if you can for a little bit longer. Spend time with people who you like. Have new experiences. And help other people. That was the five simple things which I think are really practical. And as he said, if you can try to spend a little more time each day doing these, you're And more he said, to, happy. to move on from willpower to go to design power. So the more you can actually intentionally make time during your day and pencil it in and make an appointment, you're much more likely to do it. They're simple, practical things that we can all try to apply to our daily lives to achieve the ephemeral, the subjective, the qualitative thing. No, Very happiness. Uh, yeah, very interesting. And once again, thanks to you for listening and making it this far. We are most gratefully appreciated. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to interview super cool people and research them and have really good chats. 
Let us know on social what you thought about this because that's the place where we get your feedback and we can understand what you like or dislike. And um, please let us know any guests you'd like us to uh, interview in the future because this is a real honour, something we're adoring and uh, thank you to you once again. Wishing you a great week ahead. Happiness, may happiness be amongst us all. Cheers! <laughs>